Welcome to an abundant future with Matt Powers. I am your host, Matt Powers. Thank you guys so much for joining us. This is an incredible episode with Sean Sherman, the sous chef. He's bringing Native American cuisine to the plates of restaurants. And he is bringing his message to the world and he's creating a way to bring Native American cuisine back in all the different bioregions and teaching people how to live this way, how to regenerate the earth, to preserve this culture and this way of eating. But before we dive in, I wanna share the first step of the five steps to reverse the collapse, a new ebook that I am working on right now and I wanna share it with you. I've already read the intro in a previous podcast, and this time we're gonna read step one. Here we go. Five Steps to Reverse the Collapse by Matt Powers. Read to you by Matt Powers. Step one. Build soils. Return the carbon. Have we released an irreversible amount of CO2 into the atmosphere? That is the constant question these days. Have we crossed the tipping point that will plunge our natural support systems into chaos? We do not know, but many fear we have already. Yet atmospheric carbon dioxide levels still retreat each year from choking the skies in later winter and early spring to being absorbed entirely by plants by midsummer. Field corn alone can sequester 400 times the carbon we release each year in emissions. We just till or spray that field and the lack of fungi and soil life presents the carbon, which is actually soil, soil organic matter from staying in the soil or even migrating from the plant residues themselves initially. Tons of carbon can be sequestered per acre. That means two to three feet of soil can also be generated per year. All of our desertified regions can be turned into productive perennial agricultural areas. And instead of releasing carbon, they will begin to sequester it. This can be done in only a few years time as was done with the Los Plateau Restoration Project in China, which started out as only 15,000 square kilometers and ballooned to 500,000 square kilometers and changed Chinese law altogether, leading to an incredible regeneration of rural China. We can reverse our course with atmospheric carbon incredibly quick. If we make a concerted effort to build soils, raising organic matter levels, there is plenty of room in the depleted soil bank for atmospheric carbon to be sequestered. We can take back all our emissions and more. Yet, how is this possible? We've seen studies saying you can't do this. They've tried it in fields in Iowa and California, or so you've heard or even read. The problem is dead soil, or more accurately, dirt. Doesn't perform the normal natural functions of living soil. This doesn't even account for the high level and amazing natural functions of soil that are possible in certain contexts with high levels of biodiversity present. For instance, one way soils can accomplish this is through arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, AM fungi. It is responsible for a third of all carbon sequestered in our soil globally in the form of soil structure. The carbon glues that hold the soil together and give it its lonely texture. 
In the northern temperate zones, it can account for 47% of the carbon in the soil. Yet, conventional agriculture relies upon antifungal biocides, heavy tillage, and synthetic fertilizers, all of which release carbon in their manufacture and usage, destroying soil organic matter and structure. Hence, those fields in Iowa and California that are just dirt cannot hold the carbon. AM fungi is also just one player in the fantastic economy of the soil that fungi and bacteria facilitate. Half the excess CO2 from the atmosphere has been absorbed by the oceans. This has caused a slight increase in the pH, making it more acidic, though it's still alkaline. The acidification of the ocean is preventing crustaceans from forming complete or strong exoskeletons and shells. It's bleaching the coral reefs as well. In a setting where cancer was once considered an impossibility in nature, we see it present and spreading in marine animals more each year. The oceans have their own soils as well as a fungal foundation that facilitates the ocean's decomposition cycles. It is in the animals, plants, soils, and microbiology that we must sequester the carbon in the oceans. There is no better place for this excess carbon, and it is our only feasible and proven solution for reducing atmospheric and oceanic carbon levels. No-till, low-till, and no-kill farming. Would you believe me if I said tillage, or more accurately, inversion plowing, is the leading release of carbon into the atmosphere? You can see how carbon dioxide concentrations change over the course of an entire year on a publicly accessible NASA video online. If you watch it and watch the months and locations, it's very clear where emissions are coming from. But if you don't know what to look for, it may seem confusing. Though the video explains why all the carbon dioxide gets sequestered each summer into plant life and soil, it fails to explain why each spring the most carbon is emitted. It is the time of tillage, spraying, and heavy machinery for farmers across the northern hemisphere. They are undoing what the plant and soil life did that summer before. They are tilling the soil, breaking the structure down, and aerating it so it oxidizes and releases carbon into the air. They are spraying their fields to kill back those weeds before they plant. Those biocides kill soil life and release carbon. Synthetic nitrogen fertilizers are salt-based. They destroy the soil structure and organic matter as well. When they harvest, they compact the soil further. And even if they are a conventional no-till and leave the plant residue in place, they'll mostly oxidize and release the carbon back into the air. They will spray the plant residues with biocides as well, increasing erosion, compaction, and morbidity in the soil. As can be seen clearly by the video of our planet, our cars and even our fireplaces are not making a dent in comparison to what conventional agriculture is doing. As soils lose structure, they become compacted or erode. They wash or blow away. We have lost nearly all of our topsoil worldwide. Many experts hold that only five to six decades remain of topsoil, which all life depends upon. The very thing we are destroying is the only way we can save ourselves. We can seed directly into native grasses and get a competitive crop yield. It's called pasture cropping, and Cole Sice has been doing it for over 20 years. You can follow the harvest, which can be done with machines, with cattle to mow it down again for reseeding. We can grow organic no-till, where we either are planting directly into mulch in small open pockets or using a seed drill to avoid soil disturbance. 
We can use strategic low tillage options like key line subsoil or chisel plowing to break up hard pan and heal a landscape's hydrological functions. Or, if really needful, harrowing to gently turn till the top three inches or less of soil for planting annuals, since they reply upon disturbance. But better than harrowing for annuals is to develop a perennial food system. The point of this litany of methods is that it's not only possible, but folks are doing it out there right now and succeeding in making money and feeding people with these methods. Revegetate to reverse desertification and reserve slopes for vegetation. To end erosion, we can imitate China's example with an outright ban on grazing slopes 20% or steeper in all of rural China with a focus on edible revegetation methods using handmade earthworks. It has ended hunger and economic depression as it has ended erosion, carbon release, and habitat loss. The common solution to all these issues was perennializing the landscape and their food system. This was also the case for Kenya, where deforestation and conventional agriculture were continued even after the colonists were free from the colonizers. They'd forgotten how to rely upon their natural perennial systems. Wangari Matai's work earned her the Nobel Peace Prize, and it all centered around planting trees. She led a female cultural liberation movement, challenged the oppressive and a corrupt government, and eventually served in Kenyan parliament, even instilling a love and reverence for trees in the military of Kenya in her efforts to reforest the landscape. We will also see similar tandem successes and gains as we bring back biodiversity through revegetation and reforestation. We must green the cities, the areas of desertification, the exposed soils of conventional farmers, and our coasts. Evolve from an annual-based diet to a perennial-based diet. Cultures based around perennial staple foods are more enduring by design, and a bad year an annual farmer may lose the entire crop and not have enough seed for the following year. But a bad year for an orchard is less traumatic. Trees are more resilient than annual crops. In arid or desertified climates, trees can go years without rains, while even perennial grasses cannot endure, which means the grazers and browsers come second to trees. If we do not cut or disturb the ground at all, we more thoroughly sequester carbon in the soil bank. Perennial agriculture is carbon farming by design. If you've enjoyed listening to this and you would like to read more, you can visit my website in the next week and I will have sign up for our mailing list and I will have it available and sent out to all my mailing list members everyone who signs up for my mailing list all my students are gonna get copies of this I'm gonna send it out and have everyone start sharing it with their friends so no one's gonna be left out sign up join the team we will get you this and you'll find out how you can take part in the five steps now next up we have Sean Sherman the sous chef let's dive right in I just want to start off with saying thank you so much for for joining us today. Yeah, of course. I got to see your talk with my son, and it was a, such a privilege, especially to see it with him and <laughs> share that experience uh, generationally. 
Yeah, it, Great. it's going to be on, on these young people who are coming up right now to begin living the, the, the lessons and the methods, techniques, ideas that you're really introducing. It's really incredible. I, I, I don't think many people know about you in permaculture, and they really should. I mean, you should be in, like, you know, covers of magazines in permaculture. I mean, it's, it's really amazing what you have, you have done. So um, I just want to say thank you for, for coming. And, and, and perhaps, you know, let's talk about where it all started. Like, how did you find yourself sharing Native American cuisine Sure. Um, well, you know, I grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, so my whole family is from that area. So um, both from my mom and dad's side, um, you know, quite a few generations of living there. And then when you get into, like, my great-grandparents' era, you know, most of them were living with um, the Lakota, you know, before they were pushed onto the reservation systems. So moving off of the reservation, I finished high school and college in a small town called Spearfish in the Black Hills. And then right after college, I moved to Minneapolis and um, I started working in restaurants at a really young age. So I was barely 13 when I started working restaurants. So all through high school, college, and then after college, um, just, you know, taking restaurant jobs. So when I moved to the cities, um, I just kind of crawled my way through the ranks pretty quickly. So I got my first executive chef job within just a few years of being in Minneapolis. And, um, you know, it really kind of just shot me off on that career path. Um, but I, a few years into my career as a chef, I realized that, you know, I had been studying all these other cultures, you know, Japanese, um, all sorts of European cultures, African, you know, whatever my fancy was. And it just occurred to me all of a sudden that I, you know, really wasn't paying attention to my own heritage. And when I started looking at it, I realized there was so little representation of indigenous um, foods out there. Um, I think Mistatam, or Mitsutam Cafe in the Smithsonian had just opened up around that time. And um, I just really wanted to try to figure it out, you know. So self-education was a, a, always a big part of what I've done. So I really just started trying to figure it out myself, you know. So I, I started buying books on the subject to try to understand better, like, you know, what would the Lakota have been eating, you know, pre-European influence, you know, before they're put on reservations and everything. And it really started, uh, the more I learned, the more I started expanding um, to learn about other regions and other groups and other tribes. Um, so after a few years of just a lot of self-study and really looking at different aspects um, of, you know, education, so digging through anthropological books and archaeological books and ethnobotanical books um, and just being outdoors, you know, to try to identify personally plants and try to figure things out and just try to see, you know, for myself, you know, what the regions have to offer. So after a few years of that self-study, I finally um, got to the point where I opened up my business, which is now The Sous Chef, back in early 2014. And I've been pretty much, you know, we've been, we have a small crew, you know, I have a business partner and we have a few employees, um, but we're just kind of at this cusp of getting ready to, you know, break into the next uh, big thing. Um, but we've been, you know, what we do is just the indigenous foods and we try really hard to um, stay focused on our regions and disciplined with our methods. So really trying to use only indigenous ingredients and cutting out European influences. So we're not using any dairy or wheat flour or processed sugar or beef, pork or chicken. And just really, you know, reconnecting with the wild foods around us. 
um, and the agricultural scene of some of the heirloom seeds that are still around us, um, and really just trying to make it as authentic as possible through those methods. Wow. So your, your restaurant, and, and do you, did you do that food truck? Yep. So um, the projects that we have right now is we're just a small catering company in Minneapolis. Um, I've been doing a lot of travel and a lot of talk, uh, talking about the work that we do. We did a Kickstarter last year to raise money for a restaurant. So our restaurant's not open quite yet because um, we're still trying to secure the location for this first restaurant. Mm-hmm. The, the food truck, which we call Tatanka truck, Tatanka is just the word for bison, um, in the Dakota language. Um, we did that actually as a project with the Little Earth community, which is a native urban community here in Minneapolis. Okay. And we helped them design it. Um, so we would help bring jobs into that community and, you know, promote healthy food in a different sense of like what traditional food was. Um, and then eventually we ended up just buying the truck outright. So we have the truck today. Um, and we're, but our, really our focus has been on getting this restaurant going. So another piece that we're doing is we're, we just released a nonprofit called Natives, N-E-T-I-F-S, and it stands for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. And what we want to do is to tie it in with our restaurant space so we have a place to teach curriculum about all the facets of uh, indigenous food systems, so native agriculture with all the pieces to it, you know, soil and seed saving and growing and harvesting, and then wild foods, which is kind of the same. So a lot of the permaculture piece, the, um, you know, just harvesting sustainably um, and just really understanding the plants that grow well you're in your, in your area. Um, of course, lots of cooking techniques, some salt and fat and sugar production history. So there's just a whole bunch of curriculum pieces to an indigenous food system. So we're hoping the nonprofit will help, you know, set us um, with a space to be able to do that. And then we also are hoping to develop smaller, lightweight business plans of uh, food businesses that we can open directly onto tribal communities and get them to kind of start to create their own micro indigenous food system. So promoting um, community gardens and promoting uh, landscape, you know, just redesigning landscapes so they can just put wild edibles everywhere. And, um, you know, just getting people that access to these healthy foods that just aren't around so we can really be impactful to areas all over the place. So then we hope to take that whole method of um, having an urban restaurant training center, um, educational center, and satellites onto tribal communities and move that around the nation because you could pretty much go anywhere with it. Oh, yeah. We just pick, pick a city like Seattle or Albuquerque or Bay Area or whatever and then, you know, <clears throat> get that set and then satellite out to, you know, be impactful to the tribal communities in those areas. So that's our big plan right now is just trying to, you know, we have the Rubik's Cube of like how can we. Um, really impact as many indigenous communities as possible and to really create a better sense of indigenous food systems, you know, using the tools that we have and trying to do it in a, in a short time period. So we really feel like the nonprofit is going to be the vehicle that helps us do all that work. I am so excited about this. <laughs> I have been approached by so many people being like, well, are you going to create a book about indigenous uh, food systems, indigenous uh, cuisine, all this stuff? Because I do that with my permaculture stuff. Totally. And I source, and I, of course, source all the different uh, sources I can find in history, Native American included. Yeah. And, and I've, I've always encouraged all those individuals, because most of them are from specific areas or, or tribes, and I encourage them to find 
the people with the most information from that and encourage them to create a book and I'll help in any way possible but we need to document this stuff before it is lost especially language at this point it's a lot yeah. of languages that are and I taught in an area that had in the California which might surprise people we had no um, English language learners but we had like 10% Native American huh. So, so, so I learned a ton about um, the Mono tribe, and right. um, and uh, the Chukchansi tribe, which was right right in our area. So the kids educated me as a teacher, you know, and it was and it was it was stark though that no one knew how to speak the language really, um, and they knew someone's grandmother who could, and it was like, oh no, what do you mean, just her? You know, and it's, and it's scary because the Native American cultures that we had provided, can provide still, a, a huge spectrum of answers and solutions to the current problems that we are all facing. And we know everyone's like, there's no answers. How do we do this? And we're like, permaculture. And permaculture is just a lens. Yep. And it's like, yeah, you could do this, you could do that, and you can, and it's like, yeah, these things are possible. But the Native Americans have already done it and lived it and have a system that perpetuates that knowledge. So, so it's just so exciting because this is also rewilding. The, the whole rewilding movement is like, oh, well, we got to bring back the perennial you know, wilderness that we had. It's like, right, the one maintained by the Native American culture, right, okay. You know? And so it's like, wow, this is permaculture. This is you know, rewilding. Um, this is the, the I want to grow natives, you know, in my garden movement, right? This is the right. drought tolerant, you know, tolerant movement. This is all the movements combined and distilled. And I'm so excited to hear that you're turning it into an educational movement. Because yeah, it's really the base of it. Oh, it's going to be amazing. I can't wait to see it because it's going to transform. It's going to transform it everyone it's going to change all the roles that society has tried to foist upon us as you know what i mean and, and it's going to we're going to turn back to the native americans as our teachers and it's going to be this humbling historical moment and it's going to be beautiful i'm, I'm so excited well thanks yeah because we can really see the path and you know we're working really hard to try to make this a reality but we see it so clearly because you know our focus is right now north america so we look at you know the historical aspects of agriculture stemming from central america and waving northward but we also look at how all the tribes are treating all the different parts of their food systems and you know really what it comes down to is the work that we're doing is more capacity building and community building because it's getting you know the mindsets especially on tribal communities to work together again and to bring back you know all these various parts because the food system is such an important part of the cultural preservation but it's just going to make everybody healthier um, and you know one of the biggest things that we want to do is just get people to have the access to the healthy food so we can combat a lot of these food illnesses that we see in, in kind of impoverished areas like a lot of the tribal communities so 
you know, reintroducing this awesome low glycemic, hyper local diet, you know, to tribal communities where we can combat type 2 diabetes and obesity and heart disease directly. You know, that's what we really want to try to do. But you don't have to be from indigenous descent to just appreciate the education and the history and the knowledge of, you know, how to live with directly with the nature that's around you and to, you know, know which plants grow really well in your region and know all the properties to all these things that are all around us constantly and can be even more so if we just, you know, redesign the way we look at things. Absolutely. I, I believe it's the most ethical option for food. Right. So, are you going to release a distilled library of all the information that you've been able to compile? Because it sounds to me like there is a book list that, that from your research that, you, that, that you, you have, and then it sounds like you have a distilled synthesis of all this. Because when you describe when you cook and you design meals, you go right to the flavors that are available. You go, and that's like, it's principle based. It's what's available, what's the core tenets of your, of your palate, you know, whatever you're working with in that, in that medium. And it's so inspiring because you're like, oh, creativity has no bounds. These are the flavors. You know what I mean? Exactly. There's really no rules when it comes down to that part of it. But we like to, you know, incorporate all these flavors that you might find in, you find just walking around a certain region. So, you know, like here in Minnesota, we can design a plate that has sunchoke and rosehip and berries and, you know, walleye, cedar, um, tamarack. And all these are the flavors that we're putting on the plates. And all of that is stuff you would see just walking around the lake, basically. Um, so we like to think of it as so local as that because the indigenous groups and there's so many across North America and there's so much diversity and variety you know I really like to look at North America in a couple of different map forms so you look at it with just the terroir and you know the different climate zones and how you know what kind of plants are growing in the areas and then you kind of put the uh, the language bases of all the indigenous groups that are throughout North America because people are living pretty much in every area of North America so it's just a better understanding to see like how much true diversity there is across North America um, but you know as far as the books go we have uh, our first cookbook coming out in October um, which is real simple, just showcasing how we did things in our region up here in Minnesota. Um, you know, and we kind of just break down how we looked at the indigenous food systems to really understand it all and to start putting it back together. But I think, you know, for this, uh, we're already thinking about working on the next book, which should be a much bigger volume that really tackles uh, North America in general. So really looking at the indigenous regions of all the different parts of North America, from Mexico to Alaska, and, you know, just looking at how much awesome history and lessons there are, not only in permaculture, but also agriculture and hunting and fishing techniques and, you know, just really living sustainably as communities, you know, around each other. Wow. So are you going to, because there's so many different ways to do this, are you going to do like an introductory? Are you going to do an overview where it's like um, maybe a recipe uh, related or regional and then recipe related? Or are you going to do like big volumes, like meaty, like 300 page texts? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know, um, keeping it close to culinary because that's kind of our center. Um, so definitely researching different regions. And I like starting from the south and moving northward. It's kind of agriculture spread. 
And I see it um, just being able to look at, like, if you look at the maps of the different language tongues, like where groups of people, you know, spoke very similar language bases, um, and take those maps and um, put recipes into the flavors that those people are utilizing, you know, it just breaks up, you know, there's just so much cultural and regional diversity that you see through food that way. So we just want to explore, you know, a different way of approaching North American food because it's definitely re-identifying American and Canadian food by looking at the indigenous past, Um, whereas Mexico already is heavily indigenous, you know, it's more indigenous than it is Spanish, but it's really looking at its roots and really, you know, trying to preserve a lot of that indigenous knowledge that's still sitting down there where, you know, people are still growing a lot of cool heirloom variety things, they're still collecting things from directly around them, they're still building all of their cooking utensils with, you know, pieces that are are near them, and, you know, it's just a great reflection of the way we can, you know, learn from the past yeah i completely agree that we need to get them to just taste it and if they taste it they'll they'll be converted because they'll, they'll, <laughs> i mean it, it, i think it's a great way to go i think that going with the cookbook first is great great thanks <laughs> <laughs> but i was wondering with these courses you're doing uh i'm always i'm always turning uh, trying to help people turn things into books and then into um uh, online <laughs> courses Sure. So are you going to film it? Because I've noticed that you're totally savvy with media. You've got a great media campaign. Your, your logos online are gorgeous. You've got, it, it's amazing. So are you going to have an online course or a video series that really highlights um, what you're sharing? Yeah, I would really, we were, we're, we've been talking with some production companies as of recently because we'd really like to be able to explore um, different regions um, through video. I think it's just a great way to tell the story and to have that as an educational component, you know, to utilize for the future. Um, but I feel like, you know, definitely everything is moving online. I would love to, you know, have the database, uh, a regional database where you can just click on an area and open up and see all the different facets of the indigenous food systems of that region. Wow. You know, the, the wild plants and the animals and where people are gathering salts and the tribes that were living there and then breaking everything back down into those native languages, too. So we've been trying to record, you know, the different foods and pieces of all these stuff in the native tongues also. So we're looking at here, you know, especially Dakota and Lakota and Ojibwe and, you know, Ho-Chunk, um, Arikara, Hadatsa, Mandan, and trying to, like, you know, record all this stuff so it's, you know, there's a center point for it. But we're hoping to be, you know, that center point down the road for really looking um, deeply into indigenous food systems throughout North America. This is incredible. This is how we're going to preserve the wilderness. (laughs) You know? Oh, man, this is absolutely incredible. We're going to be able to turn things around in in such a unique way. I'm so excited for more people to hear about this. And I'm going to share this with with some friends uh, over at Permaculture Magazine, and hopefully they'll, uh, they'll give you a call. Great. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Because we obviously can't do this on our own, so we're trying to create as much community, you know, working together as we possibly can. And the nonprofit's allowing us to, you know, branch out and to create a really cool board of, you know, really interesting people with diverse backgrounds to kind of help us, you know, navigate through all these pieces so we can, you know, really be effective as we move forward. Absolutely. And as you said, you know, these Native American tribes have occupied all of Native America. There wasn't a place that we really didn't live as people. Exactly. So, so 
we really have place for their diet everywhere and all we need to do is make place and I believe that those individuals if they're inspired and we can reach them will step forward and we could have a revolution overnight everywhere um, yeah we, we see it yeah, we can totally see it amazing so I'm so excited I want to take your course I want to start embracing this <laughs> um, some some things I wanted to, to highlight uh, that I thought were just absolutely incredible. Um, so your the meals in this one video I was watching were all derived in a one mile radius. That's like hyper local. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh man, and there's a lot of data and studies out there that that is the way we live at our healthiest, the way uh, we live the longest. Um, and then there's foraging and hunting, and so this. And then living paleo, it, it goes in with, with so many different, like, things that we're touching upon, but we're doing it imperfectly. Like, paleo is imperfect, I think, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's oversimplification in, in a lot of ways. And so it touches upon the Native American diet. You know, perennial, you know, permaculture touches upon the Native American diet, but this is an actual embodiment, an actual discipline, and a whole, a whole range and a whole world that people can explore. So I'm so thrilled that you joined us and shared this with us because this is the tip of an iceberg of something that's going to redefine how landscapes are seen by so many people and redefine what we consider is, is, is food and what we consider is healthy. So I yeah. thank you so much for what you're doing. Yeah, well, thank you so much. You know, we we feel like we have so much work in front of us, but, you know, it's really great work, and we really hope to be impactful on those communities. And, you know, just being able to get them to rethink the design layout of their areas and just put food everywhere, things that grow well and are culturally appropriate to those regions too, you know, because, you know, back in the days we talked to a lot of the elders where, you know, the forests were laid out with very clear maps and uh, paths where everybody knew where all the food was at. You know, they would just would move around, but they were also making sure that things were being seeded continuously every year. So things kept growing well, you know, throughout these different areas. But, you know, as we kind of lost touch with that, you know, the forests grow over, you know, not too many of the kids know anything about paths or harvesting anymore, but we can get back to all of that and we can just put food all over our town. I can't wait. I can't wait. I believe that half my job is training the people to see that they can be facilitators of nature. And we have, you know, examples in, of heritage that have, have done that in this country. And we just Definitely. need to connect those people. You know, these two bodies of people, we just need to connect them. And when we do, where there's going to be this reaction that's going to be regenerative and it's going to regrow and heal cultures as it heals the land yeah definitely well thank you so much sean i'm so excited to to keep watching you and following your work and I, and i look forward to talking to you soon definitely well thanks a lot matt i'm sure we'll cross paths quite a few times excellent all right well have a wonderful weekend okay i'll talk to you again all right bye all right, bye
Wow, well that was incredible. Talking to Sean is amazing because Sean has clearly thought out what he wants to do, what he wants to be, and where he is going thoroughly. He's already thought it out, he knows what he's doing, and he's on this mission, and he's got the, the long view in mind. He's got the care of the future, he's got the care of the earth, he's got the care of people and he's got it all balanced and locked in, and I am so inspired by him. I was inspired by him when I saw him at MOA this year, and I was inspired this time too, and I just, I'm so excited. I hope that you enjoyed this very exceptional and special uh, interview that I was able to get with Sean. He's extremely busy, he travels the world spreading his message right now. And I cannot wait for those educational resources and programs and his restaurant and all that food to reach more people. Because as I said, when these two groups of people meet, when this information is transmitted, this message that the Native American peoples and culture still retains for us today, we're going to be able to rewild. We're going to be able to create per perennial paradises permaculture is going to be able to roll forward as an understanding because that is their understanding. That was what the Native American tribes were doing and living as just part of their culture. Uh, they essentially embodied permaculture with their culture. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us in this movement, in this return to nature, in this uh, return to working and partnering with nature we can guarantee a brighter future together if we share information, if we teach each other, if we create regenerative businesses that help each other be more regenerative. Thank you so much for choosing to live regeneratively. From Matt Powers here and an abundant future, let's make it happen. Have a great week, guys.